This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this says? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Great Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated here. My name's Anthony. I'm at the old pen in the trenches right now. I'm speaking to Sky in Texas. I'm in Texas in my closet, which is pre- pretty much the same thing. So Yeah, it, kind of, it probably feels the same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. The only difference is there, there's not a bunch of visitors clinging the machine gun around. Yeah. Hopefully there aren't any visitors like in your bedroom while you're doing this. That would oh be... yeah, no, that would be. Uh, <laughs> that would take this true crime podcast to a whole new level. Yes, it would. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. All right. I think it is your turn to go first. So who have you got for us, Anthony? I have a listener request. This is a fella named Ray Watson, number three zero one eight. We have a listener who has said they enjoy the show and they're like hey my wife's great-grandfather served time there and i we think he's got an interesting story and if you think so too here's all this information so uh the family is my biggest resource buck makinson his wife the granddaughter of of ray watson they actually sent me ray's entire file which had been scanned for them and sent to them. And they also contacted the Museum of Bonner's Ferry up in North Idaho. And uh, basically, he sent me three giant emails full of information. So I did a little extra research. I went through, of course, the Idaho Statesman and Ancestry.com to find a little bit more information. But for the most part, like most of it was kind of done for me. And it was just kind of cross-referencing and just digging through a giant file full of information. So Ray Watson. Well, that is very cool. I just want to say, so thank you to the family for reaching out. Um, Huge I shout out. can't yeah. wait. Yeah. I can't wait to hear this story. Yeah. it's It was so fun to research. And it was, yeah, you'll see. It's it's okay. a fantastic story. I think so anyway. So thank you for making me aware of it because it's one of my new favorite stories. So this guy, Ray Watson, he's born in Milton, North Dakota on December 10th, 1896. That is my birthday, which is pretty cool. He had an older brother named David, younger sister named Mary, and then in his obituary, he had younger brothers named Henry and George and another sister who they, he just said the first initial C. So I couldn't figure this out. I couldn't find them on any of the other documents, but uh, I did confirm David and Mary. His parents had another child who had died at an early age. 
And his parents, their names were William and Isabel, were born in Canada and married in, in around 1886. And at some point before their first living son, David, was born, they crossed the border from Canada into the United States into North Dakota. In 1910, the federal census uh, in North Dakota showed the family living in Castleton, North Dakota, where Ray's father, William, was working as a laborer and doing just odd jobs. That's what they listed on in the census. And his older brother, David, who was 21, was actually working as a fireman for the railroad. This this boy, at, at this point, he's about 14 years old. Uh, sometime around the age of 17, he leaves home. And... The only thing I could find is his next stop in Bonner's Ferry. So let's talk about Bonner's Ferry. Have you ever been through or, or been up there before? I have not. Oh, it is one of the most northern cities. It's uh, the county seat of our most northern county, Boundary County, named for its location on the boundary of Idaho, Montana, and Washington, and Canada. And it's our only county with an international border. Of course, the land had been inhabited by native people for thousands of years, the Kootenai people, and they lived in that area and in Montana and British Columbia, and they were hunter-gatherers who subsisted mostly on fishing, on salmon. And uh, during the winters, they actually built these permanent homes that were cone-shaped out of wooden poles and rush mats. Finally, fur trappers kind of entered the area around 1810, and a a trading post was established along the Kootenai River, a few miles northwest from present Bonner's Ferry. But it's, of course, gold that brings settlers to the area in 1863. And this man named Edwin Bonner from Walla Walla, Washington, he realizes that there's a need to cross this river regularly. The the Kootenai River is, it's a beautiful river. You should check out photos and video on YouTube of it. But in 1864, he decides that he's going to, instead of chasing gold, he's going to make his money by building a ferry. And so that's what he does. He he basically establishes the crossing of this river. And after about 10 years, he leases the ferry to a man named Richard Fry. The area kept Edwin Bonner's name. In the 1880s, a steamer was actually set up. It was called the Midge. And that took over the work of the ferries. And the, the Midge was in use for about 25 years, and then in the 1890s, it started to lose business as uh, railways were set up, and, you know, you didn't really need a ferry. You could take the railroad to cross the river and, and go about your business. The village of Bonner's Ferry was formally established in 1893 along the south bank of the Kootenai River, and the area was seen as this is a perfect timber farming area and uh it was great for farming and so they actually called the area the nile of the north which i think is super cool and the county boundary county was was created by the idaho legislator in 1915 so it was kind of a, a slow slow area to develop formally but it was flooded several times. There was a major flood in 1948 in which, like, the whole town was swept with water. And you had to actually take a rowboat to go through downtown businesses to, like, collect people and things. And the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers came in and helped, like, fix seal uh, holes in the dikes and the dams in the area. And they actually built Libby Dam uh, after that big flood, which prevented future floods. Uh, my favorite thing that I found from the Bonner's Ferry website is that it's Idaho's most friendly town, which I think is, yeah, yeah, Idaho Aww. is so friendly just in general. So 
what a cool thing for them to say that they are. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I want to I wanna go visit and just see how, how friendly that is. Not to say that I don't think they're not, but I, I, I want to know, like, what level of friendly are we talking compared to the rest of the state? And also... Was there a poll? How did they decide right. that? Yeah, it might just be a self-titled, but I, you know, <laughs> I, I was, I really like North Idaho. That yeah, seems nice. Yeah. When I spent time in Wallace, it was like, that was the coolest place and everyone was so nice and I got to like join in on a traditional like fraternal orders bar hop and uh, had a great time with them. They were just so welcoming. <laughs> I'm just this little Boise kid. You know, walk walking from bar to bar with this with these older gentlemen from this uh, certain fraternal order, and uh, they were so kind. And I was like, "Whoa, I love North Idaho." <laughs> I've never made it up that far, though. That's I so want to. I really want to go to Bonner's Ferry now. Anthony, do you know how big Bonner's Ferry is? Yeah, the 2010 estimate was about 2,543, and the 2016 estimate was like 2,563. Somewhere around there. Hmm. So, yeah, 2,500 people. Uh, not not huge. And, and there's not a lot of give and take. Not like what we've been seeing in the southern part of the state where things are booming. Right, yeah. And I think it's probably due to its proximity to, like, big cities. Like, Spokane is nearby. And anyway, back to Ray Watson. Ray met this man named Earl McFain around 1919 while working in the woods near Ruby, Washington. And they were working at this place called the Diamond March Company during the winter. And they kind of split up after their jobs ran out. And around July 4th, 1921, they met up again in Spokane and went to the Palouse country to find work harvesting. But it's the middle of summer, and it was just way too hot. So they're like, you know what? Let's go to Canada. It's going to be cooler there. Let's get a job up there. So they board a train to go up to Canada, and they jump off this place that they call the Jungles near Bonner's Ferry, a short distance from the Great Northern Depot. And uh, they had with them a little bit of this thing called moonshine and uh, that they had purchased in Spokane. And, of course, this is during Prohibition, so it's illegal booze that they're drinking. They go into Bonner's Ferry, and they buy a couple of knapsacks of food. They're, they're kind of just drinking and drinking, having a good time. And they went by this bank, and they kind of joked about, you know, we should, we should rob this bank. And Earl brought up the idea, and uh, Ray, as they were walking towards the bank front door, he got spooked. And he said, no, 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 let, let's not. That's not a good idea. They weren't. They weren't intoxicated enough, really. So they decide, <laughs> yeah, they kind of walk out to the woods. They find a little area next to the river, and they, they set up camp. On July 28th, 1921, Ray and Earl, they crossed this little bootlegging joint, and they spent the morning drinking. So basically 10 a.m., they start drinking, and Ray decides that he wants some Canadian whiskey. So he asks around hey, are there any places where you can get some good whiskey from Canada? And, of course, there is a place. And so they send them to this place. They buy some whiskey, some some Canadian whiskey, and they start mixing moonshine with Canadian whiskey. They finish their supply of booze, and it's about noon, and they decide to head into town. And uh, while wandering in, in this drunken state, Earl again suggests... Let's stick up the bank. 
And without any preparation, they don't even have a bag to put money in, anything like that. They head into town. They head towards the bank. And uh, because of their buzzed minds, they uh, decide it's a good idea. They, they walk to the front door of the First State Bank of Bonners Ferry at 12.30 p.m. And actually, Earl initially backs out. He goes, no, no. And Ray actually grabs the gun and he says, you big coward, I can rob the bank myself and walks inside. Oh. Yeah. And they're, they're wearing like overalls. They don't have a bag to carry anything. But Ray's got a revolver in his hand and he walks up. It's one of the men in the cashier's window. Earl follows in behind him, and the assistant cashier, his name was Mr. Hanson, had been just sitting there reading the paper and didn't see him walk in with a gun. And he sees him. He's kind of bolted to his feet. Earl actually comes up behind that cashier and tells him to put his hands up and walk to the safe. And so he does it. He opens up the safe while Ray stands watch with the revolver, and they notice a woman, actually a teller, her name was Mrs. Stewart, who was uh, also ordered to follow the cashier to the safe with Earl. And he starts grabbing packages of money, all this cash, into his overalls, into all of his pockets. And actually, one of the uh, the folds of money actually burst open and scattered across the floor. So he's like bent down, picking up wads of $20 bills. And he remarked to, to one of them, he's like, oh, these are worth a lot of money. I mean, he was just clearly, he was very intoxicated. And he refused to take any gold or silver, but he did grab $10,000 in bonds, 10 bonds worth $1,000 each. He steps out, he slams the door, leaving these two bank employees inside. Uh-oh. They walk outside, and they start heading towards the train depot and start following the tracks. They didn't realize that inside the vault that there had been a phone installed, and immediately the cashier picks up the phone, oh calls gosh. for the county auditor, Mr. Brody, to come and unlock the safe and let them out, and he calls the sheriff, who, who runs over. He's just minutes behind. The sheriff actually investigates, he finds out what happens, and then he contacts all the nearby towns and even towns in the Canadian border. Mounted police were called to keep lookout for these two thieves. This is the first, like, real large robbery in Bonner's Ferry, and the sheriff was desperate to catch these guys, so he actually swore in four citizens to be deputies for the day while they searched for these two. And the townspeople, they figured that these two thieves must have had a car waiting for them, or maybe there was a train that left right after right after 1230. So they thought maybe they boarded the train. They started questioning people. The owner of the shop next door actually said he saw the men and heard that they were heading to the depot. This woman and this little boy both said that they saw these two men that matched these description board a train. Meanwhile, uh, Ray and Earl are actually just walking down Main Street towards the tracks, and they follow it west just a couple miles, and they come to this little flat area. And Ray actually said that this is when the the liquor started to really hit them, and they were like, whoa, we need to stop and rest. And while they were doing this, they were dropping bundles of money. Um, Oh, my gosh. Because it's just like kind of haphazardly in their overall pockets. 
So oh my the, the four newly sworn deputies and the sheriff, they split up. They go into every different direction. And uh, following the train tracks, one of the deputies actually finds a bundle of $200 in pills laying on the track. And so he's like, this has to be them. So he runs back to the town. He calls and gathers up 25 citizens to f- go with him to follow that track. At 5 p.m., so it's, this all happened at 12.30, 5 p.m., less than four hours after the robbery, a member of the posse actually spots Earl fast asleep in this thick clump of brush. And he walks <laughs> up to him, and he said, he tells him to put their hands up. And Earl wakes up. He pulls his, his revolver out, and he actually shoots twice at this guy. And one of the bullets actually grazes the back of the man's hand. And the man, oh. of course, had a shotgun, and he fires... And it, it's buckshot, and it just spreads and actually hits Earl in the left foot, oh. leaving, as the paper describes, his left foot liberally punctured with buckshot. Oof. Ray pops up. He hears all this happening. He darts off in the opposite direction from, uh, from Earl. But right then, the posse actually surrounds Ray and holds him at gunpoint, and he holds still. But Earl keeps running, and he's got his, his revolver raised at this other man. But he stopped when he sees another with a barrel aimed right at him. And so he stops, he offers the revolver to his captor, but he had what they called the business side still pointed at his captor's direction. And the, <laughs> and the citizen was like, none of that, drop it. And so Earl drops the gun and then he actually uh, bops down to pick it back up. And the guy goes, nope, I'll shoot you. And so he, he stands up, he puts his hands up in the air and they arrest him and they take these bundles, these wads of money, they're still just in their overall pockets out. And they had money tucked away in every pocket, including the $10,000 in bonds bundled in an inside pocket of Earl's vest. And in all of this, about $2,200 were missing from the cash. Both men mm. said that it was their first offense and they were so drunk they couldn't remember how much money they stole how much was dropped while they were fleeing down the tracks and they insisted that they didn't like hide it anywhere it wasn't cashed anywhere that probably the citizens actually picked it up themselves and have pocketed this money (laughs) so (laughs) they're brought to the county jail and this crowd actually surrounds it and and they go in to see them and detectives from spokane actually come because there have been several robberies in the area uh in earlier in 1921 uh, but they didn't match the description of any of those thieves ray says uh his alias was uh bob wilson he admitted that he had come from canada and earl said he was from tennessee and stated that he was a world war one veteran and had served as an infantryman in france for about six months and ray he didn't serve in world war one because he was in canada at the time and he was exempted from military duty because he worked uh, in the agriculture industry and, and at a farm. Mm. Yeah, which I mm-hmm. thought was kind of interesting. I didn't realize that that was something you could do. And mm-hmm. uh, the newspaper made this fun observation about the whole thing. They said, the fact that private citizens of Bonners Ferry turned out in such numbers to hunt down a pair of bold bandits and succeeded in capturing them in a few hours will undoubtedly be a warning to other criminals that Bonners Ferry is a good place to pass up, which I thought was... <laughs> so funny <laughs> that these guys are not messing around they will come get you so don't even try it <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. so sentencing both men were actually uh they both pled guilty to it and they were both sentenced to from five to 25 years in the state penitentiary 
Wow. I, I like that the researchers at the Bonner's Ferry Historical Society actually had this this sense of irony. Next to their sentencing uh, in the newspaper in the in the Bonner's Ferry Herald, they also had an advertisement for that bank that they robbed, and it says <laughs> the advertisement said, "Make this your bank. Our accommodations, conveniences, and cordial personal service will make you feel at home with us. Join our army of savers. Open an account today and watch it grow. Four percent interest added. First State Bank of Bonner's Ferry." Idaho's oldest bank in the county. Yeah. Ray's intake paper. Name, Ray Watson, alias Rob West. Crime, robbery, age 25. Height, 5 feet 6.5 inches tall. Weight, 142 pounds. Build, regular. Hair, dark brown. Eyes, blue-gray. Complexion, medium. Mustache, none. Born in North Dakota, December 10th, 1896. Occupation farmer. Parents were still both living. He left his home at the age of 17, and he was raised in the Presbyterian Church, but was not a practicing Christian anymore. He attended school for eight years and could read and write. He was intemperate and said no tobacco and no drugs. He was received from Boundary County on August 9th, 1921, and his closest Relatives were Robert Soper in Spokane and William Watson in Saskatoon, Canada. Condition of Hmm. teeth were good, and he said that his parents were born in Canada and entered the U.S. through King's Gate, which is the area that connects Bonner's Ferry to Yawk, British Columbia, in Canada. And it opened in 1906 uh, with the creation of the Spokane International Railroad and the Canadian Pacific Railway track, which was erected that year. Wait, so they... Sorry, so they came in through Idaho and then settled in North Dakota. That's what he said, but I'm I'm kind of curious oh, if okay. if this means that maybe he had traveled back and forth and this was just his point right. of entry. Yeah, North Dakota is not overly close to Idaho. Right. Surely there's entry points. Yeah, we got Montana between Dakota. us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm thinking it's he's just referencing his last entrance from Canada, maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure. And I would imagine, too, that it's, like, sort of confusing as if, you know, you're sitting down and you've got someone like, you know, where did your parents immigrate from? Canada. And then just, like, port of entry. And he probably was like, uh, well, I come through the Kingsport one. Right. And just like, great. Yeah. Okay. It's probably something along those lines. Yeah. His Bertillion displayed a dim scar on his chin and a birthmark on his back right shoulder, but no tattoos or other marks that were super distinguishing. Now, this is where things get interesting. About three months into his sentence, Ray actually converts back into Christianity, and he actually becomes convinced that he had been called to be a minister of the gospel. So this is the new trajectory of his life. Okay. Yeah. So during the summer of 1923, most of his file is full of letters uh, from family and from former co-workers and and others and in 1923 all these letters arrived at the desk of the board of pardons calling for race release a letter from james corwin a lawyer from canada arrived to the secretary of state calling for his commutation and it says uh for many years when i was practicing in western canada i acted for ray watson who was a farmer in saskatoon saskatchewan and in the winter time earned a living in the city and his dealings with me, he was always upright, and I formed a high opinion of his character and his ability in the lines in which he was engaged. 
Through a friend of mine in the West, I learned that Watson had been drinking, and as a result, got into some serious trouble in Idaho and had been sent to the penitentiary. I am now informed that the time has come when there is a possibility that the board might consider allowing this man out on parole. If such favorable action can be taken by the board at this time, I believe that the boy would give up the habit, which apparently he formed after I knew him, and that he might become a good citizen. His youth is no doubt responsible for the foolish escapade into which he went with his companion. No doubt the time he has spent in prison will have brought sense back into his head. If a pardon can be granted to Watson, I should be delighted to hear that he had been given his freedom. Sincerely, James Cohen. And then the prosecuting attorney from Bonner's Ferry also wrote a letter saying, I take pleasure in recommending a pardon for Ray Watson. It seems to me justice would be done in this matter by granting his pardon. Abraham Lincoln said he never abused justice, only on the side of mercy. We are all human, and if we would exemplify that justice, we would be doing that which God intended we should do towards one another. We can see the other fellow's faults, but we cannot see our own. So let us help the other fellow if he shows a disposition to help himself. May God guide you in this matter. So it was obvious to these two you know, lawyers that this man had converted, and he was dedicating his life to preaching. Unfortunately, this isn't enough. Even the, the person who sent him to prison, the prosecuting attorney, it wasn't enough. And he was denied pardon October 8, 1923. But the Secretary of State noted that his sentence was commuted to five years with good time allowance. So that would make his release date May 9, 1925. Now, Earl McFain, he actually served the full five years and he was released but after about six months he attempted to rob another bank and was captured so he returned to the prison and then they realized that Hmm. he was coming to the end of his life he was suffering from tuberculosis and so they actually sent him to the sanitarium and i i didn't see what what occurred after that but i can we can only guess that it probably led to yeah his death ultimately yeah yeah but ray he was released from prison, May 9th, 1925. He left the prison, returned to Canada, and he stopped in Bonner's Ferry on his way north and vowed that he would return someday. Soon after, he was actually ordained with the International Christian Fellowship. January 1st, 1926, just you know, about six months, seven months after he's released, he actually marries Essie Huckaboy at Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And ironically... Hmm. Essie was an employee of a Canadian bank that had been robbed. She had been robbed. Yeah. How crazy is that? So they they both lived both sides of this crime. And it seems like they had a a great marriage. Uh, On April 22nd, 1929, a letter from the mayor of Campbelltown, New Brunswick, Canada, asked the warden, in the penitentiary about Ray's past, and he wrote, uh, Dear Sir, there's a man in our town with his wife who claims his name is W.R. Watson. He claims he was a bank robber and was sentenced to serve 25 years in the state penitentiary, was converted in prison. He's an evangelist and is holding meetings here. He refers to you to verify his statements. Would you please let me know by return mail if what he states is correct and any other information you can give will be greatly appreciated. And Warden Wheeler Hmm. responds, stating that, in answer to your letter of the 22nd regarding Watson, 
An itinerant evangelist will say that he served a term here for a bank robbery and is now capitalizing his experience as a bank robber and convict and his conversion in prison is played up as a highlight in his evangelistic act. He is not vicious and his record at the prison was good. He is following the trend of modern thought and trying in a small way to emulate the example of those high moral censors like Reverend William Sunday, Mrs. McPherson, and Reverend John Rabs Stratton. They all dearly love their publicity, no matter how acquired. Oh, <laughs> Most cordially Oof. yours, J.W. Wheeler, <laughs> Warden. Wow. Yeah. Dang. So the prison administration definitely saw it as an act, but... Uh, Ray was successful at this, and actually in 1931, he returns to Bonner's Ferry. On February 12, 1931, the Bonner's Ferry Herald posts this story in with a picture of Ray and his wife with a headline, Robbed Bank, Now Preacher, Ray Watson Looted First State Bank Here in 1921. And the story, it recounts the robbery and his conversion in prison and the fact that his wife, an accomplished gospel singer, toured the country with him. And it states that he isn't affiliated with any church but preaches an interdenominational service in which he tells the story of his life and preaches the gospel. This should be of particular interest to the people of Bonner's Ferry, many of whom will recall the exciting incident that changed the life of Ray Watson from a bank robber to a preacher of the gospel. And he held these services at this place called the Rex Theater. They, they let him use this theater at no charge. And uh, at one point, Essie and Ray were eating lunch at this little restaurant. It was called the Cat and Fiddle, which is like... What a cool name for a restaurant, the Cat and Fiddle. (laughs) And Essie actually asked Ray, hey, where's the bank that you robbed? And he said he didn't know because the town had changed so much in those 10 years. And uh, he was surprised later when he found out that the Cat and Fiddle is located in the former First State Bank building. And he was sitting, yeah, he was sitting at about the exact identical spot where he stood during the robbery holding the revolver. And so... Yeah. During these evangelistic services, he said that the robbery was actually the greatest day of his life because he became converted to the gospel of Christ and had been preaching that gospel to thousands since he was pardoned after serving three and one half years. There's a a great advertisement, and I'll put this in the Facebook group, but it, it shows two photos of Ray, one with him holding the revolver and one with him holding the Bible and with his hand up in the air. And it says, uh, from bank robber to evangelist, here evangelist Ray Watson, the man who robbed the first state bank here in 1921, tell the story of his life and preach the gospel, beginning Sunday, February 22nd at 3 and 8.45 p.m. in the Rex Theater, every weeknight at 8.45, except Saturday, for two weeks. Meetings, interdenominational, all seats free, churches invited to cooperate. And they actually got a pianist from one of these churches to, to help uh, accompany both Ray and Essie during their musical performances. And he even went to the Boundary County Jail there where he had been locked up and actually preached to the men that were incarcerated there, which I thought was kind of interesting. Now, his final service was, after the two weeks there, was at the uh, Independent Order of Oddfellows Hall to this huge audience. The newspaper, the Herald, actually praised Effie's interpretation of hymns and said that the fact that Ray Watson has come back to Bonner's Ferry, the town where he robbed the bank, and held a successful revival campaign proves that it is possible for a man who has been down to make good, which I thought was such a good message. 
They、mm-hmm. actually headed to Sandpoint, being cast off with good wishes、uh, from the people of Bonner's Ferry, and they collected an offering of thirty-one dollars and forty-one cents. It's the only time I saw how much money that they collected during these、uh, services. Any idea? Any guesses、huh. as to how much money thirty-one dollars and forty-one cents would be today? Oh, thirty-one. Though the depression has happened. Um, I'm going to say probably like six hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good guess. It was about five hundred thirty-one dollars, <laughs>、uh, five hundred twenty to five hundred thirty dollars. So wow, that's quite a that's bit not, of money he walked out. That's not bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah.、Uh, so he spent basically his life. Traveling from town to town doing these services, and、uh, in 1933 it looked like he had located in Lodi, California, and he sent this photo、uh, of himself with his wife performing at this、uh, Bethel church, and、uh, said, "You know, look I, what I've done with my life. I've established myself. Also, can you send me another copy of my mugshot and my prison record?" So they、oh. they sent copies of all those things back to him. He and Essie ended up having three children together: Joyce, Lolita Jewel, and Ray Jr. In the like the mid to late 1930s, he actually spent a lot of time in the Treasure Valley putting on performances.、Uh, during the winter of 1936, the family performed at Nampa Nazarene Church,、uh, and that service was actually broadcast over the radio on KFXD. During the summer of 1937, he was giving free presentations on capital punishment and several other. Performances of this prophetic drama called "The Missing Christians" by Manfred Evans at the Grace and Truth Tabernacle on State Street in, in downtown Boise, which was also broadcast on two radio stations on KIDO and KFXD. And this prophetic drama, I had to look it up because, like, you know, that sounds interesting. And it's an evangelical story. It's it's about this devoted Christian widow who is leaving this tent revival with her children. And they're discussing the service and and how much they love God and all of this. And the oldest daughter, who didn't go to the revival, walks into the door from a what they call a night of pleasure. Nice. And she basically ridicules the family for going to this revival. And and she goes into her room after they've been upset, and they're like, "We wish you would have gone." And all this stuff.、And、she's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, whatever." She lays down and she falls asleep and she starts to dream. And an angel appears to her, and she witnesses the rapture in which、wow. her whole family and all believers disappear from the earth. And she witnesses the end of days, and is kind of led back. And she wakes up after seeing all these horrible visions, confesses her sins, and returns to Christ. And if you want to watch it, there's a version from 1952 on YouTube that I. Kind of skimmed through, and、uh, it was it was pretty interesting.、Huh. It's interesting world、okay. that that they you know Ray came from that I you know I have I have no connection to. So、right. sometimes like you never know which way that's going to go. It's either going to go straight to death slash hell, or it's going to lead、right. to straight to just realizing that you've been wrong this whole time. I don't know. They're so interesting. The sermons that he was preaching at that time, I actually found the titles of those, and、uh, one of them is "Is the End Near?" and "Will There Ever Be Another Presidential Election?" <laughs> that feels a little like today, to be honest. Right? Oh my gosh! <laughs> I I feel like somebody's probably giving this same sermon right now. Will、yeah. there be another presidential election? I don't. Who knows? <laughs>、ah. 
<laughs> we live in a, a wonderful country. It'll sort itself out. So the other one was the miraculous escape of the cashier and stenographer from the vault in which they were placed at the time of the robbery and was Mrs. Watson the stenographer. <laughs> which I thought was such a funny name for a service. But uh, he performed at Municipal Park in Boise, and he uh, actually had his, his oldest daughter, Joyce, perform and sing with his wife at these, these meetings. And the final performance he had in 1937 was at the Odd Fellows Temple in Caldwell, just kind of like in Bonner's Ferry. Mm-hmm. Now, I imagine he probably just continued to do this to his dying day. I came across one article I couldn't find anything about his death anywhere except for this one newspaper article that said that he died on May 31st, 1946. Mm. And they listed his age as 50, but I think it would have been 49 unless he uh, his birth date was incorrect mm. on his, his intake paper. But uh, it said that he left behind his wife, three children, a mother, and two brothers, Henry and George, and a sister, C.F. Mooner all of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. And he's buried at the Catholic Cemetery in Saskatoon. Wow. So that is the crazy, you know, life, crime, and rebirth of a man who dedicated his entire life to preaching after an experience that he had at this prison, probably at this point in the 1920s in the basement of the dining hall where the the chapel Mm -hmm. probably was located at this time. Wow. That is fascinating. Yeah. Huh. It's a it's an interesting story. Yeah, yeah. The he's kind of a, a man God made again, right. which is a thing we're gonna hear when we talk about Harry Orchard. <laughs> and they would have, you know, maybe those two hit it off, and maybe that was uh, a point yeah. of their conversion. Could but be. uh. Wow, interesting. Thank you, Buck Makinson. Thank you for reaching out to me and and you know revealing this story to me. This is one that I don't know if I would have come across it for a while. Right. So that's yeah, super fascinating stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, this is also our first Canadian inmate. Have you ever been to Canada? I went to Vancouver actually for my honeymoon. <laughs> we called it our pre-moon because we we had a right after the wedding we went up to Vancouver and we hung out there and like went to the comedy club and walked across this awesome bridge which i can't think of the name but it was such a beautiful town it was so amazing and everybody was very kind it felt like we were in like boise but like a really big version of it it was there were mountains and and trees and hiking trails everywhere it was it was so so nice so that was after your wedding you said yeah or our mini moon not our pre-moon oh, our okay. mini, moon mini moon in vancouver gotcha. and then our real honeymoon in gotcha. hawaii <laughs> have you ever been um kind of several years ago my family was in new york and we crossed uh the the border into the canadian side of niagara so i technically have been but it didn't feel any different it was just like oh we're just in canada now but i do want to go i really really want to go to montreal like really badly Um, so one day but um i'm fascinated by canada i really would like to visit more well that was fascinating it was a lot yeah thank you yeah If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov slash donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page. 
Any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast, enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love too. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. Well, I'm excited to hear what you've got for us today. Yeah, um, mine is not quite as... um I guess it is actually equally as exciting. There are not as many details, but such is the case with um, our early women. So today I have got number 1482, Cora Stanfield. And Cora is our first um, lady that we are going to talk about who committed adultery to get into the penitentiary. She, yeah, she was here from Canyon County. She was here on a nine-month sentence. So Adultery is, it's such a, it's so fascinating. Um, we had, I think, if I remember right, I think we had about seven women in for adultery. Some didn't have any details. She had a few, but actually they were, I found them through the newspaper. So that was very exciting, especially because she came in so early. So my sources, her inmate file, Ancestry.com, uh, the one newspaper article I found on Chronicling America, and then I did also use the official website of the Idaho legislature, and we'll get into why that is in a few minutes. So, Cora Stanfield nice. was born Cora Del Morse in Walla Walla, Washington Territory in September 1872 to Franklin B. Morse and Mary A. Morse. She was the youngest of two kids, her Um, Older brother Charles was about two years older than her. It seems that her parents separated by at least 1885 because there is a Washington Territory census that lists Franklin, Charles, and Cora in the same household, but no Mary. So her parents were separated, probably divorced, and by 1897 I found a record that Mary had married a man named Richard A. Phillips. So that's about... 12 years after I first found this census that has uh, no Mary in the household. So, but it seemed that Cora and Charles and Franklin got along just fine. She stayed with her, her family until she was about 22 years old. And at that time, on November 1st, 1894, she married Edward Stanfield in Walla Walla. Um, Just a little bit about Edward or Ed. He was born in 1873 in Washington, so he and Cora were about the same age. He was the last of seven kids, though one might have been adopted. So I think there were six Stanfield kids and then one of this adopted one because he had, um, on one census, he had a different last name and he was a little bit older than Ed was. Uh, But then in the next census, he had the same last name. So there were six Stanfield kids and then one adopted who was adopted into the Stanfield clan. And the family were farm laborers, which I would imagine that the Washington Territory is very similar to the Idaho Territory in that regard, that it's a lot of labor and agriculture until these towns start to develop. So Cora and Ed had a daughter. Her name was, I think this is how you pronounce it, Letha, L-E-A-T-H-A, Leatha maybe. Um, Leatha Hazel Stanfield. She was born on June 25th, 1897. Um, So it was uh, about two and a half years after they were married. 
Now, the marriage was pretty rocky, and according to the one newspaper article that I found, this was the Caldwell Tribune from October 24th, 1908, Ed and Cora divorced once, and then they actually remarried again between 1900 and 1909 because um, they are actually married in both of those censuses, or actually they're married in one, but not in another, and I'll get into that in just a second. So they divorced once, remarried again, and then they separated because this still it still wasn't getting any better for them. So during this separation, Cora and Leatha, I'm just going to call her that, they go to Yakima, Washington, while Ed remains in Walla Walla. Now, interestingly, the newspaper article says that they go to Yakima, Oregon. There is no such place. So I assumed that it was Yakima, Washington, though given where she ends up in Idaho, it would make sense, more sense that she was in Oregon. So I I don't know. I don't know. So they're either in Yakima, Washington, which is in the southern part of Washington, um, or they were in Oregon closer to the Idaho Territory, um, well, Idaho State at that time. So I don't know where exactly they were, but they were somewhere there. And it's here in either Yakima, Washington, or Oregon that Cora meets a man named A.G. Roberts. Um, The Caldwell Tribune actually calls him G.A. Roberts, but A.G. is a local carpenter. And so A.G. Roberts was born in Mills County, Iowa in 1868. Um, He attended school for only two years, and he was raised as a Quaker, which was kind of fun. We don't get many Quakers in the penitentiary. So he was married. He was also separated. He also had one child. So Cora and A.G. sort of had a lot in common there. And so they hit it off and they began an affair. And so Cora and A.G. decide to move to Nampa and Cora brings Leatha with her. So uh, I won't get too much into the Nampa history because Anthony covered it already in episode three of this season with the story of George Hamilton. But just a reminder, Nampa was a true railroad town just uh, southwest of Boise. And the current day, it is actually home of the Snake River Stampede Rodeo, which is one of the top 12 rodeos in pro rodeo circuits. So I didn't know that. Yeah. I think I've been, I think I went once when I was like really, really little, but I haven't been um, since I was older. And Nampa is currently growing quite a bit. I'm going to throw in this plug because this is who I am as a person. Um, (laughs) It is also home to the Idaho Center, which is where Cher is coming to play. in April of 2020, so please go. I'm so jealous. Uh, can I tell you, this is just a side note, and this is very funny to me. So she, Cher announced that she's going to go all these like little places. She's going to like Casper, Wyoming, and like all these little places. Do you want to know the amount of people who, within 20 minutes of that announcement, had like in some form communicated with me that Cher was coming to Idaho? Oh, my god! It was like at least six. At least six. Oh, and yeah. JC was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and you were one of them also. Yeah. Uh, it just made me laugh. <laughs> What if she listens it, to this and she gives us free tickets? Okay. Um, <laughs> that would, I would start crying. I would, I, I don't know. Well, granted, I cried twice at the first concert that I saw her at. And so oh. I would cry so much uh, <laughs> seeing her in Boise. Cause the last time she came to Boise was on her quote unquote farewell tour. And I was, I had, was not quite into her yet. I got into her like a couple months after she came. And so I was like, oh, I'm just never going to see her because that was her farewell tour. And then she was like, just kidding. I'm going to go on three more. So I've seen her <laughs> twice. 
Anyway, total sidetrack. Go see Cher <laughs> at the Idaho Center in Nampa, Idaho. She's the best. This is not okay. endorsed by the Idaho State Historical <laughs> Society, just by Sky. <laughs> just by me. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I'm a nerd. So, um, Nampa is also home to um, Northwest Nazarene University, and so it makes sense that Ray actually would have been preaching a little bit out there. Uh, and then... The population in 2010 in Nampa was 81,557, and the 2018 estimate is 96,252. Um, however, there was a, a Daily Statesman article from an author, Kate Talicero, or Talicero, I apologize if I say that wrong. This is from April 22nd, 2019, that Nampa's estimated population was now at 102,030 mm. people. It was the third city in Idaho to hit 100,000 behind Boise and Meridian. Um, So Nampa is growing, and it's actually going to grow even more because we just got Amazon to put a warehouse out in Nampa. Mm -hmm. So that whole area is going to explode with population here soon. But it obviously would have been a much smaller population at the time of Cora and AG's <laughs> affair, yeah, uh, probably between about 1,400 and 1,600, just not very many people out there. It's all mostly agricultural, but he is a carpenter, so he probably does have a little bit of work out there. Cora and AG apparently lived in Ample Quote as husband and wife with Leatha, so they are just living their lives out there, but um, that's not allowed. We don't know how long they were together. We just don't really know that much about their affair. Um, these are details that, for some reason, the the uh, prosecuting attorney didn't want to get into. I don't know. I don't get it. Ed, um, he travels to Yakima, or Oregon, and he learns that Cora and Leatha aren't there any longer. And he's going, well, what do you mean they're not here? And so... He doesn't He doesn't know where to go, he doesn't know what to do, but he has a business to go back to. So he goes back to Walla Walla, and he resumes his business, and he sends his brother to find out where they might be. So his brother goes on sort of a PI mission, and he finds them in Nampa, and he turns Cora and AG into the police for adultery. Warrants are issued for their arrest. Wow. So here's a fun fact, and Anthony, you know this, that... Adultery is still a crime in Idaho under the statute 18-6601 that was last revised in 1972. Mm -hmm. So here isn't the official wording from the official legislature website. Just be advised, if you do this, you could be arrested for adultery. So the official wording, quote, a married man who has sexual intercourse with a woman, not his wife, an unmarried man who has sexual intercourse with a married woman, a married woman who has sexual intercourse with a man not her husband, and an unmarried woman who has sexual intercourse with a married man shall be guilty of adultery and shall be punished by a fine of not less than $100 or by imprisonment in the county jail for not less than three months or by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period not exceeding three years or in the county jail for a period not exceeding one year or by fine not exceeding $1,000. Oh, that is so so um It's so wild. So you can have, basically, you can be fined between $100 and $1,000, or you can be kept in the county jail for three months to a year, or the state penitentiary for up to three years if you commit adultery in Idaho. 
this is not one that is enforced much anymore. I've told people kind of this this fact before, and I've heard a lot of people joke like, "Oh, a lot of people would be in the penitentiary if that were the case." I don't. I I have no frame of reference for adultery in the state, but it is still a crime, and I find that so fascinating. Yeah, I think I think now it's used as like a lesser punishment for certain crimes? Well, as of 2018, there is on IdahoDivorceCenter.com, there is a question that is, can text be used to prove adultery in Idaho? Mm. Okay, so here's a Spokesman Review article from September 4th, 2016. Adultery has been considered a felony since 1972. The crime is rarely prosecuted, but it remains on the books as a relic of America's long history of regulating sexual activity. Adultery is illegal in 21 other states, but Idaho is one of the few to classify it as a felony. There is no statewide data on how often adultery charges are filed, and in 2002, 20-year-old German man was sentenced to a year's probation for a felony adultery charge for having a relationship with a 17-year-old married teenager. Well, that is all sorts of messed up, but... Prosecutors offer the adultery charge as a plea deal, meaning the man didn't have to register as a sex offender because all other sex-related charges were dropped. Hmm. Idaho's adultery law has not been amended since it was passed more than four decades ago, and there has been no major effort to repeal it. So that's kind of fun. I mean, not really if you're charged with it. But that is from September 4th, 2016 by Kimberly Crucey uh, from the Spokesman Review. So add that to my sources there. So anyway, that is a little bit of a rabbit hole of adultery in the state of Idaho. So this is why we have um, people in the prison for adultery. So, Cora and AG are arrested, they both pled guilty, and Cora entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on October 27, 1908. Supposedly, Cora and AG had planned to marry after she had divorced Ed, but they were arrested before she sought the, the divorce, and obviously those plans were called off. So here is her intake form. Cora Stanfield, in from Canyon County, on the crime of adultery, entered for nine months. She was 36 years old, born in Walla Walla, Washington. Her legitimate occupation was a housekeeper. She was 5 feet 10 inches tall, had a dark complexion, uh, weighed about 145 pounds, had uh, dark brown hair, and the color of her eyes was not noted. She was separated with one child. Both of her parents were still living. She had attended uh, Sunday school through the Methodist Church, um, but she was not a member of any church upon her arrest. She had a common school education and attended school for eight years, which for kids in this time period was fairly common. Oftentimes, boys dropped out a little bit earlier because they had to help with agriculture, and women didn't attend really past their eighth year or seventh or eighth grade just because, like, why do you need more education than that? Mm -hmm. Uh, She was abstinent in her habits of life. The current uh, nearest relative was Frank B. Morris, her father, uh, in Walla Walla, Washington. The property found on her, she had $17.50 in cash. She had a watch, a chain, a ring, a bracelet, a gold stick pin, which I think is usually for hats, um, a side comb, and keys, and they are keeping it uh, in all in in a package in the warden's office for her release. Does she is she wearing a little hat like a bonnet in her mugshot? No. Um, oh. Well, I can't tell if that's her hair. There is like something kind of on her head, but it looks like it might just be her hair because oh, okay. it's a funky hat if it is a hat. But there is something sort of that goes like f- 
like almost like a lump on the top of her head from one side to the other. I think I always just assumed it was her hair, but it could be if she comes in with a hat, that would make sense as to why she has a stick pin. So, uh, there are only five documents in Cora's file, so we just don't know anything about her time in prison, but she must have been pretty well behaved, and also it was adultery, so she didn't have to stay for too long, kind of as it was. Right. She was given a free and unconditional pardon on April 7th, 1909. She served five months of her nine-month sentence. So after this... Cora returns to Washington and to Ed Stanfield. I don't know what happened to AG. I did find his intake form on uh, Ancestry.com from the prison. That's how I knew he was a Quaker, but I couldn't find his... They didn't have his pardon document in it, and so I couldn't see when he got pardoned. I would assume he was probably released around the same time, but I'm not totally sure about that. So then on May 15th, 1909, this is about a month after she's released from prison, there is a marriage certificate from Walla Walla, Washington, and she is married to Ed Stanfield. This is their third marriage together, if that Caldwell newspaper article is correct. And this is why I said sort of at the beginning, I sort of made that jump where in 1900 and 1909, they both, they were married still. Um, And that's because they actually got remarried. And here's a little fun fact. I don't know if this was sort of a, a poke at Cora and AG or if this he sort of had switched his occupation, but Ed lists his occupation on the new marriage license as a carpenter. So huh. it seems like a little bit of a, haha, isn't this funny? We were arrested for <laughs> adultery with a carpenter, so I'm going to get that jab in. Guess what I'm gonna I don't know, do he now? <laughs> right, because he doesn't like he doesn't list that in any of the senses following that. He's always listed as like a farm worker, so that's why I think that was sort of a jab at her. Ah. So, um, in 1910 and the 1910 census, the couple is living in Winona, Washington, which is north of Walla Walla and east of Yakima, south of Spokane. Um, It's about 50 miles from the Idaho border. They were farming with four farmhands um, living with the small family, obviously, including Leatha. The family's still there in 1920, but Leatha had moved out and married a man named Dennis Brooks in 1914. By 1926, Ed and Cora had moved to San Jose, California, where Ed worked as a clerk. Um, Leatha and her husband, Dennis, and their two kids had also moved to San Jose. So I don't know if it was one of those situations where Leatha and Dennis moved and said, Hey, Mom and Dad, why don't you come out to San Jose? The weather's really nice out here. You don't have to work as a farmer anymore. You guys are kind of getting older. So why don't you just come move with us? That seems like that might be the logical explanation, but I don't know if that is the case. Regardless, they're out there in San Jose. In the 1930 census, Ed and Cora both worked and actually lived at the Vendome Hotel. Cora was a housekeeper and Ed was a cook. So Cora lived out the rest of her life in California. She died on July 22, 1938. The records say that she died in Los Angeles, but I couldn't find any reason why she would have died in Los Angeles. I found a city directory that from 1938, like a record that actually places her in San Jose, which is way further north than Los Angeles. So I don't know if it was a misprint, if for whatever reason she went down to Los Angeles really briefly, if maybe she was sick and they had better hospitals in Los Angeles. Um, I couldn't find, yeah, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't find any reason for her to be hospitalized. There wasn't um, a, a cause of death listed on her, her death record. 
but she does die in California. She was 65 years old. And so that was in 1938. Ed actually remarried by 1940, um, and he died in 1951. So that is the brief and unfortunately not overly detailed, but still interesting story of Cora Del Morse Stanfield. It's it's crazy how she comes full circle and remarries Ed. Like, yeah, it's super interesting to me. Was that a societal pressure, or or did she actually love Ed? I don't know. Yeah, I could see it both ways because. Um, it could have been a situation where she sort of realized that she did have a good life with Ed and maybe she loved him enough to return to him. I mean, they did stay married between 1909 and her death. That's 30 years. Mm. Um, so I don't imagine if they had been divorced twice already that if they didn't love each other, they would have just been like, forget it. Let's just get a divorce for the last time. Yeah. Um, I mean, Ed did remarry very quickly after she died. I don't know if there maybe was a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say animosity, but maybe, you know, the love connection wasn't super strong by the end, or if it was just sort of one of those things where it was serendipitous enough that he did fall in love with this other woman. I think she was a, a little bit younger than he was, the, the his new wife, but it wasn't like crazy young. Yeah. Um, and I, I couldn't find that it would have been societal pressure. I mean, it is in, in a time period that divorce is still pretty stigmatized, but they had been divorced. Again, they had been divorced at least once before. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess the other question I had was, she says when she comes into the penitentiary that she's only separated, not divorced from him. So I don't know if maybe there was a divorce, like she had started papers and it was in the process of going through when she was arrested for adultery and so then they had to remarry or i i mean that has to be the case if she was only considered herself separated and then they had to remarry a month after she got out so and it you know i don't know because i find it interesting that she just straight up like ditched ag like she was just like yeah no thanks i'm gonna go back to ed when they had planned to get married so and i don't know if getting put in the penitentiary sort of dampens the relationship a bit. I think we tend to see that uh, with a lot of couples who come in together. But yeah, I don't, I wish I, I knew why she went back to Ed. Maybe, maybe it was true love and I'm, and I'm just too cynical. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. It might've been a fiery, <laughs> fiery relationship. Well, interesting, Sky. Thank you for bringing our one of our adulterers to the show today. Yeah. We uh, there are a couple more. How many did you say? Six total. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. six or seven, if I remember right. Uh, but yeah, so there was sort of a spate of people who were arrested for adultery, kind of in the early twentieth century. We don't have too many adultery arrests after I'd say probably nineteen thirty. So um, yeah, we'll have to to maybe dig into. Few more of those. Yeah, it's fascinating that that's still still a crime you can be charged with here in Idaho. I recommend to our listeners out there, don't commit adultery. Just yeah. if you're unhappy, get a divorce. If you're happy, stay in it. Yeah. Don't get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> don't get arrested. Yeah. Do your own time. Do your own number. Yes. <laughs> Don't get put in prison for cheating on your spouse. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else, guy? 
I hope everyone has enjoyed the second season, and if you like it, let us know, and maybe we'll be back with a third. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.